You're listening to a special Renew Economy podcast series, Locking in the Green Energy Transition, presented by Giles Parkinson, editor of Renew Economy, and Claire Forster, a partner at global law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. Hello and welcome to a brand new podcast series from Renew Economy. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and also the co-host of the popular and weekly Energy Insiders podcast. And this is a special series, Locking in the Green Energy Transition, which is sponsored by Norton Rose Fulbright. And it's going to be looking at all aspects of this green energy transition, which, as we can see, has become quite front of mind in the political debate and mainstream media and, of course, has been front of mind in the energy industry for quite some time. Well, it's going to be a series of podcasts over the next few months. And in this first one, we're going to be having a look at the network debate and uh, what networks can do to play their role. And uh, joining me is going to be my co-host in this series, uh, Claire Forster from um, Norton Rose. Claire, thanks for joining us. And um, what a great opportunity to discuss some of the, um, the really big issues in, the, uh, in this transition. Indeed. Thank you, Giles. And I would add that in legal circles, this is also a very significant issue and we're very proud to be part of this today and to also welcome John Cleland, the CEO of Essential Energy. Absolutely. John, thanks for joining us. Hi, Giles. Hi, Claire. Lovely to be here. Look, John, let's get straight into it. Um, one of the big debates about this green energy transition at the moment is the building of new projects and uh, and particularly new transmission lines, the need for 10,000 and some would say even more kilometres of new trans- transition lines. Now, um, it turns out you're the uh, CEO of Essential Energy and um, you've actually got a big network that's already been built and um, has a fair bit of capacity. Indeed, Giles, Essential Energy has has a network spread across 737,000 square kilometres of New South Wales and covering covering indeed 95% of the state and parts of southern Queensland. Across that area, we have roughly 182,000 kilometres of overhead network, which has within it significant capacity for the hosting of renewable generation and and in particular rooftop solar. So do you sort of feel that in this sort of debate, I mean, it's, been, it's become quite fraught in the, in, in the terms of, you know, new, new lines going, you know, across farmlands, across communities, and of course, you know, there's sort of social license issues and things like that. Do, do you think to, to some degree we've kind of forgotten about all these distributed networks? Because as you say, I mean, there's tens and tens and tens of thousands of kilometres which exist and have a fair amount of capacity. Well, I think all the all the distribution networks, and particularly those with rural and regional footprints, are acutely aware of the the hosting capacity that exists within them. Um, the The debate and the narrative nationally probably has, to some extent, underplayed the potential of distribution. Um, I'm not not in saying that, suggesting that it's overplayed the importance of of transmission, um, because clearly. Clearly, there is going to be a requirement for all of the above, if you like. There'll, there'll need to be the build out of additional transmission networks, and there'll need to be the exploitation of existing and potentially new capacity within distribution networks. 
Yes, I, I, I guess the I guess the message um, then is that um, you know we keep on hearing things about the green transition being delayed because it's hard to build these new lines, the extra costs and things like that. I, I guess it, it, would it be fair to say then that with the distribution networks, because you've got so much of this existing capacity that we could actually get on in, in many ways um, with building up that, the, the, those wind and solar projects, but maybe that's not being encouraged right at the moment. Are, are we missing some opportunity? Well, there is certainly, certainly a significant opportunity there. Um, and it is, as you've as you've alluded to, it is becoming a, increasingly apparent that the the challenges of building out additional transmission infrastructure are considerable. And I'm not for a moment implying the transmission infrastructure is not required or won't be built. It's clearly, clearly, absolutely required. But the time frame across which it will be built is likely likely to be significant, particularly given some of the, the sort of the land acquisition and community issues that are coming to the fore at the moment or increasingly coming to the fore. Um, and so there is a real opportunity to better exploit capacity within distribution networks, which has the potential to deliver additional capacity much, much quicker than that that will be linked to new transmissions build, transmission build um, and also, also at a lower connection cost. That's pretty interesting. Look, I'm just going to hand over to Claire um, um, very shortly, but I just have sort of one sort of um, one sort of question. Maybe you can just expand about that sort of. You know, I mean, how much of a lower cost would it be for 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 connections? And 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 maybe I mean, how much capacity do you think you actually have in in, in various parts of of your network? So it's difficult difficult to say with certainty what the the cost differential would be, um, but it is likely that connections to existing distribution networks will be will be several times less than the connection a connection to a new transmission build so so a res for example um, in terms of in terms of the capacity and just a few a few numbers to quote here the essential energy network which as i say extends across 95% of new south wales and parts of southern queensland has a peak load of around about 2.5 gigawatts. Um, the network today hosts roughly 1.5 gigawatts of renewable generation, both scale solar and wind, and approximately 1.8 gigawatts of rooftop solar. Now, not all of that rooftop solar is, is available for export into the network. It's, it's limited, of course, by export limits and to some extent by inverter inverter capacity. But there is 1.8 gigawatts of nameplate capacity across the, the essential energy network. We, we have done the essential energy network or essential energy team has done considerable work over the last couple of years in particular in terms of building a digital twin and getting a much, much better assessment of the available capacity within the network. And as that digital twin has been built out or developed, it's become increasingly apparent that the available capacity in the network is significantly higher than that that was previously estimated. And that's largely, largely because of much, much more or much better detailed modeling and estimation of the thermal capacity of lines. 
And what we are seeing at the moment is that there's probably, in addition to the to the generation already hosted on the network, there's probably another 2.5 gigawatts of available capacity, which of course can be built out considerably with augmentation or further augmentation of the network. And John, carrying on from those thoughts, we're hearing some very profound observations about the capacity of the network. And I suppose this, your network, the Essential Energy Network being in a regional area is different from some of the metropolitan networks, um, particularly given its sort of sparse customer base. Are you able to talk a little bit about those differences, please? Sure. And there's a few a few things to consider there. Um, and I'll make the point at the outset that every distribution network, irrespective of its geographic location, likely has considerable additional generation capacity within it. Um, and so whilst whilst metropolitan networks clearly have less available land, they have a much, much higher density of dwellings and in and as a consequence a much higher dwelling much higher density sorry of rooftops on which so, rooftop solar can be hosted and so important to note that that every every distribution network has considerable potential in this regard in the central energies case what we have is a very low customer density particularly compared to the other the other networks in new south wales and Implicit in that is considerable amounts of available land for the hosting of scale renewables, wind, wind and solar. Um, and the other, the other point to note here is that regional New South Wales is going through something of an economic boom. There is considerable population growth and economic growth across regional New South Wales. And when I talk about the available capacity of the network, it's actually a reasonably dynamic dynamic calculation, if you like, in as much that as additional load is added to the network, then there is the potential for additional generation because the constraint to some extent is, is actually being able to utilise abundant or surplus solar-generated electrons in the middle of the day. And as additional load, and particularly loads that, loads that opportunistically exploit cheap energy in the middle of the day as rooftop solar and, and, and scale solar proliferates further, then the overall capacity of the network will increase. Understood. And I suppose speaking of those customers, how do you see those customers benefiting from the energy transition and how is Essential Energy seeking to further that? Well, there's a few a few things to consider there. The first the first is, and I think as a general principle, there's there's lots of debate and and some of it somewhat tortured in terms of the the relative cost of renewables. Um, and at one end of the spectrum, rooftop solar generated within the home is extraordinarily cheap. At the other end of the spectrum, um, a 100% penetration of renewables built in a short period of time would require very, very significant transmission build out, um, very significant generation build and significant investment in, in firming, be it, be it storage, pumped hydro or storage of various forms, including pumped hydro um, and, particular, and potentially other forms of peaking. And that 
that today would be a relatively expensive energy system. And so it follows that to the extent that, or the, to the great, sorry, to the extent that load and generation can be co-located, customers will benefit from higher levels of reliability and, and cheaper and clearly greener energy. And so for essential energy customers, the potential to build out additional rooftop solar and at the commercial level to, to avail themselves of scale renewable developments, that opportunity is considerable and the benefits to customers, as I say, both in, both in terms of cost and, and likely reliability and resilience will be considerable. In the pre one of the recent podcasts um, from Renew Economy, there was a discussion about community engagement and social licence and seeing to it, hopefully, that those things are aligned with the more loft the loftier goals, I suppose, of the sector. How, do how does essential energy approach community engagement? So community engagement for essential energy is always, always a critical consideration. Um, and the, the, the great benefit, and this is really the, the theme of this conversation, the great benefit essential energy has is existing infrastructure. Um, and so new, new generation and new load on the essential energy network will invariably involve a whole lot less community impact in terms of the requirement to, to augment or, or build new infrastructure. And as I said, said earlier, there will be the potential to, to further augment or develop the essential energy network to increase the extent to which generation and load can be hosted. But within the existing network, there's considerable capacity. And so that, that in terms of community impact and community engagement, that is a, that is a massive positive um, that essential energy has and other distribution networks has the potential to exploit. So when you're talking about upgrading the essential energy network, are you talking about new lines and new areas or are you talking about sort of mostly reinforcing existing capacity? Probably both in reality. Um, as, as new load comes on and particularly, particularly loads that are location specific, such as, such as mines, then there is the potential for additional build out of, of, of lines and we're we're in the process of commissioning a a new section of line at the moment, which will which will connect into a a soon to be commissioned wind farm. Um, there will also also, as you've alluded, be considerable or there is considerable potential for the augmentation of the existing network, and that that would involve the strengthening or upgrading of of conductors, um, potentially potentially new substations. New transformers and such like. How does Essential Energy see storage participating in that transformation? Storage will play a critical role in the transformation, um, and one of the key key constraints, if you like, or potential constraints on the proliferation of rooftop solar is, of course, the ability for networks to to maintain voltage and frequency through the through the day as abundant solar generation or rooftop solar generation comes into the network clearly clearly our objective as a, of a as a network 
is to limit to the greatest extent possible constraints on rooftop solar system size and constraints on export. So minimize export limits and ideally move towards much more dynamic export limits to do that and to and to facilitate the, the further proliferation of rooftop solar storage will be critical and that is that is storage if you like at all levels it'll be storage within within the customer premise um, it'll be storage on the low voltage network storage on the high voltage network storage on transmission networks uh, in the in the, the likes of you know the hornsdale and waratah type batteries and of course it will be will be pumped hydro a critical critical element of this is community batteries and by community batteries, I'm really referring to batteries that exist on the distribution network and allow customers who don't necessarily have batteries within their own home to, to export electrons in the middle of the day when, when they have a surplus and to determine what becomes of those electrons later in the day, either, either they, they are reconsumed within the home or sold at a fair price into the wholesale market. And I'm, we've seen um, some examples of all of those different alternatives um, that Essential Energy has been trialling. What are the early signs of some of those trials, if, if it's not too early to say? It is, it is very early in those trials, but clearly, clearly the, there is very, very significant benefits and a, and a critical requirement for the rollout of storage. And as I say, community batteries will, will really be key to that. And community batteries are proving challenging in every, every jurisdiction globally, just in terms of, of finding, finding a mechanism within existing legislation, regulation and rules that actually allows the development of, of community batteries. And community batteries won't be the whole answer. There'll be, there'll be batteries owned and operated by, by various participants in the energy sector, but community batteries will, will play a critical role and the trials we're undertaking currently are absolutely reaffirming that. And going back to your comments about the, your digital twin of the network, is that allowing you to identify ideal spots for storage, large-scale generation, load, etc.? It, it's assisting assisting enormously in that, um, and particularly, as I said earlier, in relation to the thermal capacity of the network, it's it's very much assisting us in identifying sections of the network where we're able to increase export limits or or, or potentially remove export limits to to further further facilitate and stimulate the proliferation of rooftop solar. Um, I'm just wondering if I can hop in here and just ask about electric vehicles and how they might play a role because they pay, they they have an influence on the network. Um, they're distributed. They're spread right across and across households. They they um, impact demand, but they also can play a role in supply potentially. How how are you looking at EVs? Well, electric electric vehicle proliferation and the support of electric. Pro vehicle proliferation is one of the the four pillars of essential energy's strategy we've identified that separately as a strategic pillar in its own right um, for, for two reasons firstly as an organization we fundamentally believe that electric vehicles have a critical role to play and and will proliferate on mass and become sort of a, a much a much higher proportion of the overall vehicle fleet and 
Secondly, as you've alluded to, Giles, electric vehicles have a very significant role to play and impact on the energy sector and, and particular distribution networks. So firstly, in relation to charging, there is, there is the potential impact, and this needs to be managed very carefully, of electric vehicles being charged within customer homes and businesses. Um, the, you know, the, obvious, the obvious risk there is that electric vehicles all get charged, or a large proportion of electric vehicles get charged at the same time of day, and that, that triggers the requirement for considerable augmentation of the network, which clearly, clearly comes at a cost and a cost to consumers. Um, the, second, the second element is the location and the network augmentation required to support fast charging. Um, and that's, that's likely to be considerable. And there are some, some genuine, genuine considerations and challenges in all of this in, in terms of ensuring the, the mass amount of connection requests and potential augmentation requirements that all networks will receive as electric vehicles proliferate and charging requirements increase are managed are managed are managed efficiently and clearly that's going to require careful consideration by by governments and by regulators the the other huge potential and ramification of electric vehicles is as you you alluded to their storage potential and as a greater proportion of new electric vehicles come onto the market with vehicle to load, vehicle to home or vehicle to grid capability, that storage potential will grow considerably. And I can certainly envisage a future world where electric vehicles have proliferated and a high proportion of them are vehicle to, to grid capable. And what that will mean is that electric vehicles will play a huge role in effectively effectively load shifting or, or storing excess electrons in the middle of the day and making them available back into the grid or into the system in the evening or at times of peak demand. And, and clearly also electric vehicles in that regard will play a very important role in resilience. Um, so where there's where there's outages or impacts to supply, electric vehicles have the potential to provide, in some cases, many days of backup to to homes. And there are some great great use cases of that emerging out of the US already. Yeah, no, even in Australia, I think even even in the floods uh, just recently, sort of things like simple things like vehicle to load and where cars can provide power uh, where it's not otherwise available. So it sounds to me that you're not scared of electric vehicles at all. You actually sort of think there's going to be a fantastic opportunity for the networks and, and, and for the resilience of the grid. Absolutely. Electric vehicles will be will be a massive net positive to the grid and, and to the community. That doesn't doesn't take away from the challenges we face and networks face in ensuring that the network capacity is there for for charging and the network augmentation required is undertaken on a on a sort of a timely basis and the odds the odds of getting this right and perfectly matching network capacity with ev charging demand are unfortunately low there will there will naturally be be points at which that timing is not 
is not aligned and that will that will place pressure on networks and and regulators and governments to find a way through that and ensure that EV charging infrastructure and the associated augmentation is undertaken on a on a timely basis and in the most economically efficient fashion. I wonder if we can actually just get back to the topic that we were sort of talking about right at the start, and this is sort of this capacity building for for new renewable and solar projects, um, you know, wind and solar projects, and, and and what have you. And you talked about the capacity that you have on your grid and the number of projects that might be there. But can you just sort of go through some of the barriers that um, that perhaps you'd like to have changed? Um, I think, for instance, the New South Wales government is holding a series of auctions of new generation capacity and storage capacity. They're sort of um, they're kind of what's known as LTSs, which are sort of effectively sort of long-term underwriting agreements. But am I right in thinking that the local networks are actually excluded from this, and and this is only available to projects which are sitting next to sort of either existing or new transmission lines? Um, is that correct? And I'm I'm, I'm presuming that's, you might want that changed. <laughs> that that is that is generally correct, and. I think it's right to say that LTSs are generally generally limited to to projects that will connect within the designated renewable energy zones, and clearly clearly there is the potential to to change that um, and ensure that that projects that are connecting to distribution networks might be able to avail themselves of the same the same opportunity. And there's a there's a range of other other regulatory and policy changes that can be undertaken to ensure that the the connection process playing field between transmission and distribution is effectively to some to some extent leveled so i guess those discussions um you've been, you, you've taken those concerns to the relevant authorities the um, government and um and presumably aema In, indeed and there's a high level of recognition across regulators, AEMO and government, that there is significant opportunities within distribution networks. And there are a range of reviews and processes in train actually looking into that. And Essential Energy welcomes the ongoing and ongoing engagement with, as I say, AEMO regulators and government to ensure that we do optimise the potential of distribution networks and provide the best possible outcome for energy consumers. And I wonder if I can just ask an, a, another question about that then. I mean, this idea that you can have transition without, you can't have transition without transmission. Is that entirely true or do you need both? You, you, you absolutely need both. The transmission will clearly play a very, very critical role in the, in the energy transition. If we're to move to a high proportion of renewables in the system, then there is indeed going to need to be significant new transmission investment. Um, my, my, fun, my fundamental thesis is that, that distribution networks, as I've said, can, can provide significant new generation in the, in the sort of the near term and probably at a lower, a lower connection cost. And those opportunities must be, must be taken advantage of. And John, those transmission networks, particularly the new transmission builds, come with them with a, a lot of hype, I would say, around bringing the community along. Uh, is that a challenge that Essential Energy also faces with its network? Not to the same extent, given our network is an existing network. Um, and as we've discussed, a lot of the, 
the augmentation of our network will be will be the upgrading of existing lines and existing infrastructure. Essential energy is, as I say, operates across 95% of New South Wales. We have 96 depots across our network footprint. We're extraordinarily visible within the communities in which we operate and have been particularly visible through bushfires, floods and storms and are enormously proud of the relationship we have with the communities in which we operate and the communities we serve. Well, certainly we've covered a lot of ground already, Giles, um, and thank you, John, for for your insights. Um, just not wanting to focus on the negatives, of course, but in terms of those challenges that you were talking about, um, you, we're in an atmosphere where essential energy is being pulled in a lot of directions. Um, it's got to keep the lights on for its customer base. Um, it's got um, high costs from a supply chain perspective, um, a lot to get done on a daily basis. And I suppose my question is how how are you planning for this influx of renewables and storage that you have flagged are certainly plausible and desirable? Well, essential energy approaches the the energy transition and the the enormous changes we'll see across the network in the coming years with with a great sense of optimism and that's built off the the, the dramatically improved operating efficiency and the the changes in our cost base in recent years over the last sort of 10 years in particular um, and it's also it's also born out of a, a fundamental view that the energy transition and particularly at a distribution level, can be enormously, enormously, and sh and should and will be enormously beneficial for customers, um, and so that's that really underwrites and drives our thinking and our analysis. Um, we we have, as I've alluded to a couple of times, made amazing process with the development of our digital twin in partnership with Nira, and that is that is. A really powerful tool in being able to in allowing us to to much better understand the capacity of the network and to model model scenarios around this. Now, all of that optimism doesn't in any way in, doesn't in any way diminish the enormity of the challenge, and the challenge is significant. We are seeing increasing costs come through from from all elements of the the energy supply chain, in, in including including of course distribution charges as the impact of of inflation and 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 higher interest rates flow through into distribution charges and and some level of increased expenditure associated with with both resilience against climate variability and and positioning the network to to do all the things we're talking about in terms of storage generation EVs and and a raft of other very positive changes that are coming in the sector, and so we do approach it with a with a high level of optimism, but also a a, a sense of you know absolute realism about the enormity of the challenge. 
John. Um, we're probably sort of getting to the winding up. I just had a couple of other little questions, and just just about that sort of you know looking at the looking at the technical possibilities, the digital twins that you've been talking about with Nira and some of the other things. It just seems to me that over the last decade, the energy industry itself has just gone through this sort of I don't know whether it's a cultural, or it's a technological change. It's just like you know things which people just did not think were possible ten years ago are now being sort of openly embraced. You know, just even the the simple fact of high level renewables and even the possibility of going to 100% renewables with inverter-based technologies and things like that. It must have been fascinating being within a huge network, an organisation like yours, and just sort of seeing the process of that technical, technolog technological change, excuse me, um, which I guess must bring it with it to a cultural change as well. Could you just sort of talk about that sort of process and how those two marry together and maybe some of the challenges of managing that? Ab absolutely. And, and I think of it very much in terms of the opportunities and I think for I know for all of us currently working in the energy sector we are enormously privileged to be working through and living in a period of profound profound change and with that change comes real challenge and uncertainty but I'm personally enormously proud of the cultural change that has undertaken been undertaken in essential energy over the, in recent years, and the emergence and development of whole new skill sets across the organisation, and we've talked about we've talked about the digital twin. There's a raft a raft of other new skill sets that have been and capabilities that have been developed and, and are continuing to be developed across across the business. Um, one of the one of the points, and you you probably alluded to digitisation in essence. One of one of the real points here is that the energy transition is is generally talked about in terms of the transition from from centralised fossil generation to distributed variable renewable generation, and that's that's entirely right. I think particularly the the distribution level and from the perspective of customers, when we look back on the energy transition, it will have been much more of a digital a digital transition. Um, and that that is what will have had the most profound impacts. And as a distribution network, aiming aiming to to facilitate that that digital transition um, and to undertake the same the same transition or transformation within our own business is a as I say an enormous opportunity and challenge. Hmm. Um, it's um it's it's certainly an exciting time. I mean, you know, we, we hear doubts about whether we can. You know, meet our targets. You know, be they the eighty-two percent renewable target or net zero targets by you know whenever they might be. I think twenty fifty is the official one. Some people think it should be closer to that. I mean, do you have confidence that we can still we can we can still do that? You know, despite all the sort of you know the the short term issues and the intense political debate and things like that, can we get there? I, I think there's there's enormous opportunities for very positive outcomes. Um, it is it is going to require very careful consideration of the the sort of the cost trade-offs and the level of the level of risk, particularly as as coal-fired generation or coal-fired generators retire out of the system, um, and that really it really comes back from a distribution perspective to the enormous potential of distribution networks to to play a, a leading role in in particularly in the near term. Um, facilitating some of the some of the new generation going back to your comments around the sparseness of your network 
there has been changes and um, and a tendency towards standalone power systems, in, in effect chopping off parts of the grid and allowing those to stand alone where it's economically more feasible to do that rather than to maintain a long skinny piece of distribution network. Have those um, those standalone power systems proven to be something that the communities have been interested in taking on and is it something that essential energy sees value in? Essential energy absolutely sees value in the emergence of standalone power systems and Claire as you as you referenced we have a, a low customer density and some some very very long stringy parts of the network. Um, the, the manifestation of that is that customers at the end of those lines generally experience relatively relatively unsatisfactory levels of reliability the, the impact of storms in particular but but all other sort of impacts on networks are greater greater for those customers um, and from a network perspective some of those lines are disproportionately expensive to maintain given their given their distance and low customer density so there is there is absolutely an opportunity to transition some customers onto standalone power systems and potentially decommission some sections of the network in the future. It's a very we're very early in that journey at the moment, and we've 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 all sort of watched the the regulatory changes that have that have been contemplated and and in some cases implemented in this regard. Um, in relation to to microgrids, there is the inevitability of microgrids emerging across distribution networks. Um, I'd like and to, to distinguish, sorry, to distinguish those microgrids being um, systems that still have a connection to the network as opposed to a standalone system. A, 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 absolutely. So I, I would refer to them as connected microgrids where there is a, where there is a high level of self-sufficiency within that microgrid, but it remains, it maintains a grid connection, both, both for the purposes of resilience or redundancy and and also to allow the export of of surplus electron the surplus electrons that inevitably exist in a in a microgrid if it is to cover its own load requirements on a you know a reasonable proportion of the time and so essential energy has a couple of a couple of trials underway with standalone power systems now and a couple of trials just underway presently looking at looking at Sort of trialing elements, <clears throat> elements of standalone and and microgrids together, and there is also the inevitability that some customers will unilaterally choose to go standalone, and that's that's a custom that's a choice customers will make in some situations. As I say, particularly those who who endure or experience lower levels of reliability, and certainly given the the ongoing reductions in cost and increasing levels of efficiency associated with standalone power systems, some new new properties being developed across our network footprint probably will elect to go standalone rather than than connect to the network in the first instance. Um, this is this is all of this is an enormously positive trend and will generate will result in enhanced and improved customer outcomes in the long term and and give rise to a more efficient and cost-effective network. And it's the the inevitable outcome of all of the technological change that we've been talking about earlier, um, facilitated by um, 
a network like yours who wants to see to it that the customer base are getting reliable power but in a way that that's efficient absolutely absolutely and key key to so much of what we've discussed this morning is the ongoing reduction in cost and and increasing efficiency of batteries that we will inevitably see in years to come and for customers contemplating standalone versus a grid connection really really fundamentally important to that that sort of decision making process both from a customer and a network perspective is the level of the level of resilience or redundancy a customer has and the ability to export surplus electrons into the system and clearly the system overall benefits from the maximum number of customers with the potential to export electrons in because we we've seen that rooftop solar is a a very large and important source of generation in Australia already with with you know roughly roughly something like a third of customers having rooftop solar across the across the NEM, um, it's already a very significant source of generation. It's a fantastic development and I'm certainly uh, watching all that Essential Energy is doing very closely, um, like I think many of the listeners today having heard about your insights, John. Thank you very much from myself and Not Rose Fulbright for, for joining us today. My pleasure. So thank you very much, John. Um, you've been listening to uh, John Cleland from uh, Essential Energy. Um, Claire, um, fascinating conversation. Um, what were your big takeouts from, from that? Certainly a great conversation. Uh, the biggest takeout is the potential for distribution networks to contribute to the transition. But also, I think John used the word exploitation, and I would use the word liberation um, to be able to do that. And that's a policy and regulatory piece, um, as well as technology and other drivers that will facilitate that. But it's interesting, we talk about, you know, storage and EVs and and networks doing things differently. But meanwhile, regulation and regulators um, are still looking at tightening the potential for these things to happen. We're looking at ring fencing changes. The ACCC is looking very closely at vertical vertical integration issues, for example, in the Brookford origin matter. And so there's there's a bit of a tension between um, optimal versus perfect, and it'll be interested to see where that line is ultimately drawn to make sure that this transition isn't slowed down too much and that it actually happens and it can be unlocked. The eternal battle between optimal and perfect and uh, what have you. Yes, absolutely. Look, um, thank you very much, Claire, um, for joining the, um, this conversation. Um, it was, um, it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, you've been listening to Giles Parkinson of the Little Renew Economy. Uh, Claire Forster, she's a senior partner with Norton Rose Fulbright, um, specialising in the energy industry, as you can hear, and also John Cleland, he's the CEO of Essential Energy. Um, this is a new series focused on the green energy transition locking in the green energy transition has been sponsored by norton rose fulbright and uh, we'll be back with another episode in a few weeks time i hope you've enjoyed this podcast bye for now